This is an ABC podcast. G'day, Tom Switzer here and welcome to Between the Lines. It's always great to have your company. Now today on the show, there's been a lot of talk about how millennials feel about socialism. I do hope you don't think I'm a pub bore, but this is a fascinating subject, isn't it? <laughs> so let's go right to the source and ask a millennial. Joe Sternberg, he will tell us straight. Socialism, smashed avocado, and how he holds the generations before him responsible for the so-called mugging of the millennial. Stay with us for that. When you think of nationalism, what comes to your mind? For Jean-Claude Juncker, he's the European Commission President, the nationalists who have proliferated across Europe in recent times, what did he call them recently? Stupid. For French President Emmanuel Macron, nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism. Yet for many people, nationalism is a badge of honour. It represents simply a love of country, especially in a globalised world. Indeed, Donald Trump recently commemorated the 75th anniversary of D-Day and he defended the kind of nationalism that won World War II, the kind of nationalism, he implicitly argued, that will be necessary to defeat those waging a war against the West today. My next guest disagrees, and he says that the kind of dangerous nationalism that shapes US foreign policy, well, that can be traced back to Reagan and Bush Jr. Brendan O'Connor is an associate professor at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. He's a co-editor of a new book called Ideologies of American Foreign Policy. G'day, Brendan. Welcome back to RN. Good to be talking with you, Tom. Now, before we address Trump, Bush and Reagan, uh, tell me, uh, why do you think nationalism's a dirty word? Because nationalism tends to be about domination. It tends to be an argument that my country is the best country, and when you've got such an arsenal of weapons of the United States, simplistic ideas like American exceptionalism, American greatness, uh, America first, those are dangerous ideas because they don't have much nuance about them. They don't have much concern about the details on the ground. And so put into action, those ideas can be ruinous. And I think they were ruinous in Vietnam, they were ruinous in Iraq, in the 2003 war and you know in Afghanistan as I argue in the book at various points in time because you need a greater degree of detail when you get involved in foreign interventions and nationalism is a poor policy guide it's a set of motherhood statements about the sort of benefits of your nation over other nations and so nationalism needs to be curbed it needs to be sort of curtailed is one of the big arguments of the book we're putting forward and so on its own it's it's a prescription for disaster in many regards it may make people feel committed to their country, rally around the flag, but on its own, uh, beyond the idea of independence and the idea of having a sovereign nation, uh, it's not a foreign policy set of ideas or prescriptions. But for many liberals in the West who uh, champion this so-called rules-based liberal international order, they all too often refer to the United States that American global leadership is upholding the rules and norms of that liberal international order. So isn't an assertive global uh, America needed to uphold that Pax Americana. 
Well, I suppose one of the fallacies of the kind of liberal international order was that America was always doing these things for the benefit of the sort of global system. America, of course, was often doing things for its own benefit, um, creating a rules-based system that suited it. So you've got to look at the sort of you know, costs and benefits of any situation. And in those situations, I think those who promote that kind of liberal international order, they forget that all presidents are nationalists, not just Reagan. You know, Clinton was a nationalist. Obama was a nationalist. It's the type of nationalist What's they the are. alternative to American global leadership then? Well, I suppose some people would argue, and I'd probably be on the side of this, to say that you, if you're going to have an international sort of order, you're going to have a rules-based system, it has to be more cooperative. You've got to occasionally listen to your allies a lot more. You've got to be really engaged in multilateralism. That has to be a true process. And if you can curb your nationalism and you've got issues like global warming, which go beyond nations or refugee problems go beyond nations, you've got to take an internationalist approach. But when nationalism is a guiding force, one of the strong arguments of the book is that it's not a clever set of ideas. Yes. It's not an ideas that set of ideas that says, okay, I'm really interested in how things are in Iraq between the Shia and the Sunni or in Afghanistan between the various factions. It's a set of ideas that sort of tends to run on the lines of, we know what's best for you. Um, we need to assert our domination here. And it comes with an overconfidence, a hubris, through the sort of period of history we look at in the book, from 1945 really up to the Obama administration, uh, you know, there's been some pretty unfortunate things that the United States has done in terms of military intervention, which has often been pushed by a type of nationalism that hasn't been for the good of the world or for the United States for that fact. My guest is Associate Professor Brendan O'Connor from the University of Sydney's United States Study Centre, and we're chatting about a new book he's co-edited, which is called The Ideologies of American Foreign Policy. Now, Brendan, in your book, you dedicate chapters to the Reagan and W. Bush presidency. What distinguishes Reagan foreign policy from W. Bush foreign policy? Well, I think they both start out with this belief that freedom is a magical concept that the United States can spread to the rest of the world. They have a different threat. Uh, it's anti-communism that's Reagan's big concern. And then after September 11 with Bush, it's terrorism. But over time, Reagan is moderated. He's moderated by his Secretary of State, George Shultz. He's moderated by his concern that some kind of accident or misunderstanding will lead to nuclear war. And he engages, as we famously know, in negotiations with Gorbachev to reduce tensions, to bring a form of arms control in. But he doesn't stop being a nationalist. Some people, some of the sort of books that I was arguing against, what I wrote in the, in the Reagan chapter was he doesn't stop, you know, trying to promote America's position to its fullest. Uh, he doesn't stop various foreign interventions in Nicaragua and Afghanistan that are particularly in Afghanistan, have a long sort of uh, a long tail to them that we're still seeing today. So he, it's a combination. Where Bush, I don't think there's this kind of moderation. I mean, there's yeah. realists there. In this latter part of his presidency, you get Condoleezza Rice, you get Robert Gates playing a role, but Bush, the hubris is stronger and the belief in this kind of magical sort of notion of freedom, which is sort of pushed by a particular type of American exceptionalism and nationalism, isn't moderated to the same extent, and more moderation of those ideas, I think, would have been beneficial. And the neoconservatives in the Bush administration who championed aggressive unilateralism, regime change, preventive war, many of those neoconservatives and their predecessors, they slammed Reagan in the 1980s for 
his seeming restraint. I mean, he, he lifted uh, Carter's grain embargo on the Soviet Union. Um, I think uh, Reagan withdrew US troops from Lebanon in 1983 when he saw a quagmire looming. Mm-hmm. So are there significant differences here between Reagan and Bush? Yes, that was fascinating to look back on, how much criticism Reagan received for negotiating with Gorbachev. You know, he was seen as naive, that he was falling into a trap. A modern-day Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> that, you know, he need, that the hard line that he'd followed up to 1984 would have been the better approach. Uh, and those people, I think, were wrong. And so for them to come back a generation later and say, okay, well, the, the best approach is this kind of unilateralist, interventionist approach, uh, reminds us that we've got short memories. Uh, and this is one of the fun things and important things about writing historical books is that we've got to learn something from these mistakes. They're not mistakes which are circumstantial or, you know, if only there were more troops that we might come to. They're mistakes that changing other nations is fundamentally very difficult. No one wants the idea of a nuclear war. No one wins from that. And those are pretty much permanent lessons from history or Mm. realities. And so for people like the neoconservatives under the Bush Jr. administration to come back and say, okay, we can reorder the world. We've, you know, we've got so much power that we can change nations, we can democratise nations, we can change the nature of the Middle East. From our experience of the interventions of the Reagan period, there should have been a lot of concern to say, look, changing other nations is, mm. is, is very unlikely. The, the, the widespread consensus, Brendan, and, and you and I have uh, reflected this orthodoxy for more than a decade since we've known each other, is that the Bush doctrine um, led to the disaster in Iraq and by all accounts, it has been a disaster. But the neoconservative get-out clause is that uh, Washington, uh, the Bush administration, did not commit enough troops to the venture in the first place. Plausible? I think we had this argument in Vietnam as well. If there was only more troops, if there was only more bombing, and that led to the disaster of, you know, over a million people were killed in that war in Vietnam, the death toll would have gone up. There would have been maybe periods of America holding Mm. Iraq, as they did in the surge to some extent, but those things would be temporary. I mean, you had a resentful population that was not embracing the United States. Uh, There were, you know, outbreaks of fighting of sheer forces very early on in that war, attacking American soldiers. Now, the Americans are supposed to be the ones liberating the Shia against against Saddam Hussein's sort of Sunni Ba'athist party. And so there was already signs of that the Americans were not going to be seen as liberators uh, and there would be a resentment. Um, so there was obviously, you know, it was, it was, it was a mess. Yes, and it gets back to your point about beforehand. nationalism because there was a, a widespread consensus in Washington that democracy was an export commodity, commodity to Iraq. Mm-hmm. And if anyone had studied their history of this part of the world, they recognised that Iraq was a, a, an artificial uh, construct, that it was ethnically and tribally divided. And it was going to be very hard to sort of create a viable liberal democratic state out of the ruins of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. But in fairness to the Bush administration, didn't that surge in 2007 work in creating a significant degree of stability and relative peace in Iraq. And it wasn't until President Obama's troop withdrawal, this is Bush's successor, his withdrawal in 2011, that's what created the strategic vacuum that allowed Sunni jihadists such as Islamic State to exploit. Well, I mean, Al-Qaeda Iraq wasn't a new thing. Uh, when Obama came along, there'd been, you know, there'd been Sada City and other parts of Iraq that uh, had been, you know, the, the danger of Al-Qaeda had been there before the danger of ISIS arised. I mean, the question would have been how many troops for how long? And that wasn't sustainable politically. There was no appetite, as you know, in the United States for that. 
The sensible and necessary solution was a political solution, but the factionalism of Iraq was so profound that achieving that political solution has been incredibly difficult. And so, as you know, was it America's role to stay there with a huge number of troops for a very long time? Um, would that have created more resentment at some point? Yes. And so, and we've had that situation in Afghanistan. One uh, politician in the United States who's clearly caught the significance of this war-weary mood in the United States was Donald Trump. He ran on a campaign of America first. Now, that's hardly the same thing as Bush's crusade to promote democracy across the globe. Uh, but you nevertheless put Trump and Bush in the same same camp in the sense that they embrace American nationalism. But on foreign policy, they're poles apart, aren't they, Brendan? Well, I think with both of them, there's a tendency to see America as this kind of mighty power in the world, the greatest power, the greatest nation in the world, and that that power is sometimes going to have to be used through military force. So I think Trump sees, like Bush and Reagan to some extent, the US military as a problem-solving sort of uh, tool. And that flows out of, I think, a particular confidence that America's role in the world. Now, you're certainly right that Trump is more reluctant to intervene. Uh, he's certainly not an interventionist in the period that we've seen him as president to this point. Leaving uh, aside the bombing on uh, Damascus. Yes. That, leaving I mean, aside that. That, yeah. that was an example yeah. of, I suppose, that sort of you know instinctive belief that the military can solve particular problems. But the potential is there with Trump. Mm. I mean, I don't think many of us were very comforted in the period where he talked about fire and fury mm. towards North Korea. The potential was there to say this guy will see a kind of potential military solution as a way of sending a message. Now, thankfully, that brinkmanship has been pulled back from, and we're not at that point. But I don't think we should say, well, with Trump, he would never intervene, or he the, he has a form of he is not a nationalist in a way that is potentially dangerous. But you're not suggesting interventionism is always wrong, though, are you? In most cases, I think seeing military intervention as a problem solver, unless it's a sort of the last resort, there's no sort of record of, of success in that regard. What about Kosovo and Bosnia in the I 1990s? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the the this, the record is mixed. Yeah. I think in times of extreme desperation, um, the Rwandan conflict could have an international force save people's lives there. Yes, possibly, but it has to be sort of done in this way that's you know, so sophisticated and thoughtful that it doesn't have these unintended consequences that you get, you know, you get with, you do get in the Bosnian incident. You don't, you know, plenty of people, innocent people die in that situation. Um, you know, there's still people arguing the benefits and the costs of that intervention. Brennan, we could keep going. Great to see you again. My pleasure. Great to talk with you. Well, that was Brendan O'Connor. He's an associate professor at the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, and he's the co-author of a new book called Ideologies of American Foreign Policy, and we'll put a link to that book on our website. You're on RN. Well, no doubt you've heard me bang on about millennials on this show and elsewhere, haven't you? <laughs> well, these are young Australians, as well as Brits, Americans. They're roughly in their 20s and 30s. And so many of them are increasingly embracing socialism. Now, the Sydney-based think tank that I run, this is the Centre for Independent Studies, last year we commissioned YouGov to conduct some polls. 58% of Australian millennials have a favourable view of socialism with only 18% having an unfavourable view. What on earth is going on? 
Well, my next guest, a millennial himself, has a more nuanced explanation. Joseph Sternberg is the author of A Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. That's published by Pacific Affairs. He's also with the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and he joins us from the UK via Skype. G'day, Joe. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Tom. It's great to be with you again. Joe, explain your thesis. Well, I started out uh, this book because I wanted to know if millennials had a point. So, you know, when we're talking about millennials, first off, we should be clear about who we're talking about here. Um, It's anyone born between about 1980 and 1997. So these are uh, young adults, including myself. I was born in 1982, uh, who are anywhere between around 20 and almost pushing 40 now. And as you pointed out in your introduction, there's been this big uh, push politically for uh, these younger adults over the past few years to really start moving leftward. And a lot of that is born out of economic frustration that I think seems so confusing uh, to a lot of their elders because, uh, you know, oftentimes times seem to be so good in a lot of places. So, you know, I started out digging into, uh, you know, exactly what it is about the situation of millennials, especially in the decades since the global financial crisis of 2008, uh, that might explain all of this. And I discovered that actually millennials do have a point that, um, you know, in a lot of key ways, uh, the, the job market the housing market, uh, you know, their personal finances, and then also the government finances that are going on around them have been misfiring in a, a lot of ways. And a lot of this has to do with policy decisions that their elders made mm. after the financial crisis in an effort to overcome that financial crisis. Uh, and you know, what happened is that a lot of political leaders, a lot of policymakers, a lot of business leaders you know, really discovered that they were firing blind in that crisis, that they were making a lot of decisions in the heat of a panic without really thinking about some of the generational trade-offs that they were making. Okay, so summarize succinctly, you millennials, as a generation, you struggle to find good, stable jobs, pay your student loans, you buy houses, even pay your taxes, some say. And this is not due to bad luck. It's because the boomer politicians, the baby boomer politicians, they made a series of awful decisions during and after the financial crisis of 08, 09, and that shifted the burdens of the recession onto their children. Uh, Exactly. And so, you know, particularly coming at this from the perspective of the American economy, where I think a lot of these problems are especially acute, you know, what I started thinking about was really what has happened in the economy, not just in the past 10 years, but over the past 30, 40 years, during the time that the baby boomers themselves were young adults and, you know, shifting into positions of political or, or economic influence. And I think that a big problem that we've had is that you started seeing the shift away from focus on an economy that would be driven by productive investment, um, you know, a focus on creating good employment. And instead, it became much more focused on uh, sugar rushes from uh, debt accumulation, whether it was in the housing market. You know, we especially saw this in America in the subprime mortgage uh, market that completely blew up and caused the crisis in 2007-2008. I discovered that was actually a phenomenon that had uh, happened across a lot of different parts of the economy, where you had uh, boomers who were, uh, you know, often trying to better their own lives and thought that they were doing the right thing. I'm careful in the book to say that the boomers didn't necessarily realize that they were doing this. I don't think that they set out deliberately to do it. Uh, But we are at a 
a moment where we need to think about some of the mistakes that uh, the baby boom generation did make, uh, you know, because these are really urgent problems for their millennial children. And my generation as millennials are going to have to understand these mistakes so that we can avoid making them again. You start your book with the views of an Australian businessman, Tim Gurner. Uh, explain this avocado youth housing nexus. Uh, well, this was a thing that uh, you know really busted up in the the news, both in the U.S. and in uh, you know here in the U.K. where I live right now. Uh, back in 2017, where Tim Gurner had uh, done an interview with Australian television, and he made a point almost as a throwaway that you know, one of the reasons that he didn't understand the complaint of young people who can't afford houses in Australia right now is, you know, how can people who are spending $20 on an avocado toast for breakfast or brunch, how can people who have that kind of money in their pockets complain about not being able to afford a house? <laughs> and it, it is a fair point. And you know, this is something that I found so interesting. And it gets back to this, uh, you know, what I said was the original question I wanted to answer, which was, do millennials actually have a point when they complain about the economy? Because you have this dichotomy where on the one hand, uh, we do have a lot of avocado toast. We have smartphones. We have more daily comfort than any previous generation in human history. And yet, you know, we have problems with long-term economic security. You have this uh, divide between a very happy today and a very uncertain tomorrow, which I think is really something that uh, baby boomers in particular need to understand about what's happening with the millennial generation, what's driving a lot of these political trends that you're starting to see from uh, younger adults that okay. might at first seem very puzzling. But it wasn't just the Australian businessman, Tim Gurner. You also quote the Australian demographer, uh, Bernard Salt, who's with KPMG and the Australian newspaper. And, and he says that young people could save more quickly for a home if they ate out less often. And your point was that the reaction was swift and hostile, right? Uh, yes, because you know what you did end up seeing from that episode was a lot of millennials striking back, and some of it was, uh, you know, certainly very sarcastic. You know, people saying, "Well, you know, I would have uh, saved for a down payment on a house, except I spent ten thousand dollars on avocado toast last year." So, you know, clearly <laughs> pointing out that you know maybe we don't do as good a job of making some of the trade-offs. Joe, frankly, it's better than any generation in history at this point in their life cycles. Uh, yes, I think that in a lot of ways that is absolutely fair. To to say, and I think that that is a you know some perspective that millennials could do to pick up from the baby boomers who are often making that point. But I think it is important from a millennial perspective to push back against that a little bit, uh, because you know some of these uh, you know, sarcastic or biting critiques of Tim Gurner were actually right. I mean, it is true that. It, you know, in a way, it misses the point to talk about the virtue of scrimping and saving and not going out to expensive brunches to save for the deposit or the down payment on a home when you are seeing this phenomenal price of appreciation in the property markets and particularly in the property market in major cities around the world, which are the real job centers for millennials in the modern economy, um, you know, you have a lot of people who find themselves getting trapped where they have to move into Sydney or Melbourne or New York or London or Hong Kong, because that's where the job opportunities for the millennial generation are. That's also where they are least able to afford housing. And, you know, oftentimes that lack of affordability is a problem that was created by the baby boomers, you know, who, who've restricted supply. So, you know, I think that it is important to, you know, understand millennials do need to remember how well off we are compared to so many of our forebears in human history. But I do also think it is 
is important for boomers to recognize that there are a lot of aspects of millennials' economic lives that are more difficult uh, you know, than people will realize if you just happen to wander into a happening brunch spot on a Saturday or Sunday morning. My guest is Joe Sternberg. He's the author of Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. Joe, your thesis clearly applies to the United States and some might say Britain and many parts of Europe, but does it apply to Australia? Because although many millennials are anxious about their lot in life here, uh, unlike the Americans and Europeans, we Australians weathered the global financial storm. You know, we didn't go into recession in 08, 09. And really, we enjoyed a big incomes boom from the mid-1980s until the early part of this decade, at least. So does your thesis apply down under? Uh, I think that it does in, in important parts, because I think that one of the key things that I discovered uh, as I did look around the world at uh, other places that have grappled with these issues, it's certainly true that Australia has a lot of advantages uh, that other developed economies uh, don't have right now, because as you said, Australia never really suffered the depths of the global recession the way uh, Europe or America did. Um, you know, certainly, it has a lot of things going for it uh, as an economy. Uh, but, you know, I, you can still pick up on, you know, little bits and pieces in there that do have an effect specifically in Australia. For example, uh, you know, we were just talking about a lot of millennial complaints about the housing market. And I think that it's important to ask how much of that is because uh, existing property owners who often are older adults, baby boomers, or members of Generation X, uh, have put in place policies that make it difficult to build homes in the place is that millennials are going to need those homes in the new uh, you know, 21st century economy, particularly in big cities, uh, you're going to run into some fiscal issues. I mean, Australia is very lucky not to have the levels of government debt that um, most developed countries have right now. Uh, and it also has a relatively modest fiscal deficit. But it's also true that already about a third of the Australian government budget, if I have my numbers correct, are going to the sort of entitlement spending that is actually creating a lot of problems already for millennial taxpayers uh, elsewhere in Europe and the U.S., uh, because that kind of spending commitment limits the choices that millennials are going to have as they enter politics and start wanting to make their own decisions. Uh, and you know, finally, I would just point out that there's a global angle on this. I think that one of the great virtues of the Australian economy is that it is so open to the rest of the world. And unfortunately, I think that that means that other people's demographic and political problems risk sometimes becoming Australia's. I think that it is going to matter uh, if America, if Europe are struggling to address a lot of these issues, uh, because ultimately Australia has such close re uh, economic relationships with those other places that there will you know, be some you know, filter on effects down the road. Yeah, when I speak to Australian millennials, a lot of them are priced out of the housing markets. The way I came to think of the dilemma that we face is that you know, the boomers were trying to find a way that they could really square the circle on a lot of these economic policy issues. They wanted to have, they understood that they needed to have a free market operating uh, but they also wanted to have the comfort or the perceived security that would come uh, from having the government guiding that market in some way. And it was really this attempt to find a third way or a middle road between the free market and a more traditional form of honest socialism uh, that created a lot of the problems that the baby boomers are bequeathing to their children now. It created a lot of the policies that distorted housing markets, uh, created a lot of the problems that skewed investment uh, for businesses in ways that have had serious effects for millennials in the job market. 
um, you know, it created a lot of uh, problems concerning the affordability of higher education and the incentives for that. So I think that what millennials are going to have to do is figure out how do you extract yourself from that middle road? And do you want to uh, take the turning to the left, uh, which certainly a lot of socialists think that the answer to this problem is that there was too much market. I think that there's also a a good argument, and a lot of millennials are probably, I, I would expect that they're going to start discovering this, um, you know, in the next few years. There's also a good argument that actually the solution leans more to the right, that actually the problem here was the government, the attempt to steer the market, and that actually the market can work a lot better for young adults, for millennials, if we let it. Joe, great to have you back on the program again. Well, thanks for having me on. It was great to talk about the book. Joseph Sternberg joining us from the UK via Skype. He's the author of The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. And we'll put the link on our website. Well, that's all from us this week on Between the Lines. It's always great to have your company. Now, remember, if you want to hear the episode again, you can always hear us via your ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our program page at abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts. Thanks again for joining us today and I look forward to your company next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.